Let's surf the waves inside of Jason Silver's mind. Jason is an Emmy-nominated TV personality, filmmaker and futurist, and is known for hosting National Geographic's Brain Games and Origins. Jason uses technology to excite people about philosophy and science. Through free-flowing streams of consciousness, he opens minds with an intense appreciation for life and being alive. He enlightens his audience to not just make art, but be art. The following conversation contains recreational drug references, some strong language, and a lot of real talk. Well, you're also an actress, right? Yeah, so acting is actually, I would say, my my yeah. key passion. What you trained and what you did, yeah, good. Yeah, I think this is actually a really nice place to start. Okay, audio is recording. So the, the concept of Meisner was invented by Samford Meisner, the acting practitioner. Meisner says that acting is living truthfully under the imaginary given circumstances. And in order to live truthfully, you have to first learn how to live truthfully as yourself. So the repetition exercise, two actors are facing each other and they look into each other's eyes. And the only rules in the exercise is you just have to tell the truth and notice something about the other person. And from a technical perspective, you have to repeat what the other person notices about you. And the other person has to repeat what you notice about them. So it, it might go something like, you look inquisitive. And then you would accept that and say, I look inquisitive. And I would keep repeating this until something changes. That's the, that's the concept. But what actually happens when you've been doing this for a while and you start to allow yourself to be more vulnerable. It's a really a vulnerability exercise. Interesting. You can notice things about the other person and the other person can notice things about you. It can get very, very deep. <laughs> and this exercise has been one of the most profound exercises that I have ever encountered. Wow. It feels like you're embarking on a roller coaster because you have no idea where it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think where, where actors shine, I suppose, is that they can do that um, on demand and they can do it with whoever they're assigned to do it with. Um, I would say that the real life version of that for me is every time I really hang out with somebody that I like and I smoke a joint with them, um, you go to a very real place right off the bat but it's also because you can see deeply into that person's mm -hmm. essential nature. Um, however, if I'm around somebody that I don't uh, jive with, then seeing into their essential nature when I'm in such an open state will be very harrowing. And so that is, <laughs> so I fear that as an actor, it's just like one of those things where I'm like, well, if I have chemistry with the person, yes, like let's, let's go, let's get naked, you know? But if I'm not feeling the vibe, I don't just want to be assigned and have to go there with somebody whose inner life already is giving me weird vibes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting right, that you right. say chemistry because yeah. there is a chemical reaction between you. And for that chemical reaction to happen, I think Correct. Two, both parties have to Correct. be open for that to flow. Right. But, but, but there are certain states of consciousness in which you don't have the choice to be open anymore. Sure. One of the reasons I've always loved uh, cannabis is once I've calibrated an environment, a set and a setting, 
that I feel safe in to go to a very open and vulnerable and, and suggestible place to increase my receptivity and reactivity to whatever's going on. It's like the opposite of having a shield. It's like, no, no I'm, I'm naked. Like if I like the song, it's gonna make me cry. If I like the movie scene, I'm gonna explode. If I like your eyes, I'm gonna kiss you. Like I, I go into this place that's where basically I act out my interior life. So my, my, my interiority gets, gets acted out, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, I can be so much more expressive and so much more inhibited, you know, that's, that's in those spaces, I, 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 I dance, you know, but, but I'm somebody that doesn't, that the, the, the checklist for getting there is, is pretty, you know, it's, it, there's a, there's neuroticism behind the checklist. There's, there's certain non-negotiables, you know, perhaps maybe it's too much, but I'm a little bit like a, like a, like a pilot doing a pre-flight checklist. And if anything's not working, if anything's not being met, then we're not, we're not taking off. Well, Sorry, what's that know? checklist? Well, the, the checklist is already to have made a determination about who this person is and whether I can trust being open with them and whether I want to be around them when they're open or do they have some stability in their inner character, you know? Um, and, and, do I suspect that I will enjoy what they bring my attention to or what they point my attention to? Because when you pay attention to someone, whatever they point out is where, you know, it's called the deictic shift. They point over there. I look over where they're pointing. So are they going to bring my mind, my awareness to places that are going to be compelling, interesting, counterintuitive, or are they going to disturb me? Right? Sure. Am, am I going to find them disturbing? Am I in an environment where the, 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 the trials and tribulations of the default world, you know, the, the, the world of uh, tr the transactional world, is that going to interrupt me when I'm in that kind of mythopoetic trance state or archetypal state where my interior landscape is being acted out? I don't want to do that when I'm crossing the fucking street. So I have to be in the magic circle, right? I have to be in a place that feeds back into whatever's happening and supports it. Yeah. Like the stage is a safe place for the actor. And the environment is going to reinforce you being in a safe place, even if you're going to uncomfortable places. Does you know, that that's one of the things that I actually found really difficult about um, this acting training that I was telling you about, the Meisner repetition, because you become so vulnerable amongst strangers and then you have yeah. to go back out in the world and put your mask back on. Because if you don't, then you're just really susceptible to all kinds of things, you know. Well, of course, <laughs> and that's why, and that's why the most interesting actors and actresses are so shy in real life. They're so sensitive; they they can barely handle the crowds. You know, the most gifted ones, in a way, find the default world disturbing because to become good actors, they've cultivated that softness and that porousness. So then you go out into the world and, and the world is like an infectious disease, you know, no pun intended, but like it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's rough, you know, and, 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 and I, so that's, yeah, you, you have to, you have to, if you have that almost crippling sensitivity and openness, uh, may you be so lucky to find a, a place that protects and nourishes that, the magic circle of the stage and a supportive peer group, um, because otherwise the world's just gonna run you over. Um, meanwhile, you know, I, I, never, I never studied acting, I studied film, but 
I did end up in, with a career in television and, and, and when I was a television presenter for, for many years. But my, the head of programming at the first TV network that, that hired me back in 2005, he made us go to a Meisner class just for shits and giggles. And I found, I, I, and I found the experience very distressing and I'll tell you exactly why. It was in Hollywood. And so who goes to like a run-of-the-mill Meisner class? A bunch of like actor wannabes. And sure, among those actor wannabes, there's probably some very talented folks, although they're few and far between. But a lot of them are like, you know, fame chasers. And and I could just I could just feel the sizing up of everyone else against everyone else. I was just like, I can't be in an environment where people are so hungry to be validated and to be seen in a certain way because it was already it was already making yeah. me not want to. I don't want to play this game. You know, this is not sacred space. Back in the day, the real famous people were the were the gifted performers, the larger than life people who who just showed us everything on stage and became heroic and godlike. And so. Of course, you know, to an impressionable young person with a big ego, they're like, I can do that too, you know? Mm. And some can, and, and some have to destroy their own egos to get there. Mm. But what initially teases them to try is some part of them that thinks, hey, I'm handsome, I'm beautiful, I, I can get that, I can do that too, I want to be famous, you know what I mean? And so there's a, there's a strange paradox there, you know, that... Um, you know, I don't, I don't think they realize what they're signing up for if they really want to break through, you know, if they really want to break through, they're going to have to let go of all that shit that made them move to Hollywood to begin with, you know. And, and that's like the, the first step, I think, you know, and, you know, this is not my intention to make this about this conversation about acting, but there is so much that we can learn from acting to help us in our own lives. And I think that you embody a lot of the, the training that I've had as an actor, I feel that you get to a place in your in your work where you are vulnerable and you mm-hmm. are open and you are mm-hmm. willing to connect to huge amount of audiences who follow you. And I think that, you know, just from what you just said about, you know, lots of egos in the room, if you want to be a good actor, just work on yourself first. That's the first step, I think, yeah, you yeah. know, and that's, that's, that's yeah. where it really comes back to Meisner saying acting is living truthfully under the imaginary given circumstances. First, we've got to live truthfully and you, sir, are helping people get there through your work. And that's why I'm super excited that we are having this conversation. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, this idea of living truthfully under imaginary circumstances, you know, I believe you can also, uh, you can deploy the imaginary upon the landscape of the real, right? Like acting as a kind of augmented reality. So you give Mm. me some raw canvas, you know, I make a choice about a place I'm going to, some beautiful park or some nature preserve, you know, that's, that's 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 a real place. But then I bring the imaginary circumstance to it. I, I deploy the theater upon it, let's say with the music choice that I bring. You know, I have my my Bluetooth speaker and I play some like cinema film scores, you know, and so I'm already, I'm already applying the imaginal, the augmented reality of my song choice upon the landscape. And you know what happens if I'm in a mystical place? Sure, there's something implicitly mystical about it, but then when I play Lord of the Rings music on top of it, all of a sudden it feels like, wow, like it's almost like, this soundtrack belongs to this place. And, and, and it's like the music and the place enter into a relationship, right? That before I know it has, has enchanted 
what's happening. And inside of that enchantment, you can call it an imaginary circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. But it's an imaginary circumstance that becomes more real in some ways than the transactional realm of the everyday, right? Mm -hmm. Dreams do not lack reality. They are real patterns of information. This is a quote from my buddy, Rich Doyle. So when I go out with my buddy to sacred space, this is my friend, he's from Latvia and his mother is a stage actress. So no doubt he comes from that place. You know, but he's one of the people that, it, and especially when he's in an altered state, he's so pure, like he's so real under whatever imaginary circumstances we deploy. And sometimes I like to do this exercise where I'll, I'll play a really dramatic or sad song and I'll just film a close-up of his face for three minutes, you know, and he'll just hold it until he starts to weep because he allows himself to go there. And I'm like, that's what actors do. What's interesting about me trying to live truthfully is I seem to only be able to do it uh, through language. So, you know, they say the best acting is not acting, it's reacting. Mm -hmm. And I find that I might not be very good at that. I'm not really an actor to the degree that, you know, I'm not the guy you cut to to see him reacting. I'm the guy you cut to to see him speaking, you know. But in some ways, I would argue that my words are a reaction to what's happening inside of me. Mm. But it's just, I, I, I only really care to show myself when I have something to say. I don't want you just to see me, uh, well, just to see, just to see my face scowling. Like, it's like, if I, I don't feel entitled to your time. So for some reason, for me, being truthful is, is to be alive with and through language. So a lot of my experiences are also being mediated by the words I use to describe the experiences, you know, which feeds back into the experience itself. So to that end, I'm a little different, I think, than a lot of actors who, who we say it's all about their reaction, you know, the, the stoicism or the silence and so. Well, it's the reaction because it's about us seeing the process and the journey and being with people through that journey. And, you know, similarly, we are with you through your journey and you are, I mean, this is the kind of is one of the questions that I have for you is at what point did this start for you? Was it a gentle journey of you learning certain things and then having certain awakenings or was it some one event that happened? I've always been a very sensitive person. So obviously I was a very sensitive kid and my mother is, uh, she teaches high school literature and has for 40 years. Um, so in addition to you know, the English classroom. So her classroom was full of quotes and books and, you know, teaching Slaughterhouse Five and Kiss of the Spider Woman and Hamlet and all of the books that she was teaching. That was, the, she, that was the, my mother. And so our home was an extension of a love of literature and ideas. But she also, she also uh, directed a lot of theater, uh, amateur theater, but still exquisite. And she even acted uh, a couple of times. She, she did a couple plays in Venezuela in her moment. So that was, that was my world growing up, and, and I always loved movies. Um, movies were a safe place for me to be a voyeur, you know? And I think that things that are compelling and interesting, I just want to really, I, I, I want to stare at them, you know? Like, I think that when, when I'm able to see things as, you know, to see people and objects and things as worthy of aesthetic consideration, 
like that's the realm in which I'm most comfortable, you know? I don't really wanna deal with the transactional realm. I wanna deal with the realm in which I engage with you because I'm like, wow, you're so interesting. Wow, oh, I like how you smile. Oh, that's cool. Wow, I love that song. Or if I'm talking about even societies and politics and conflict, I'd much rather do it from a detached and aesthetic perspective where it's like, oh, isn't it interesting how human beings, how they fight amongst each other and this tribalism things. It's all about like a symbolic immortality project and everybody's trying to like create a worldview that they can invest themselves in so they don't have to face their fear of death. Wow, that's amazing. I wonder if anybody's made a film about this. You know, from the detached perspective, I don't have to fall into the transactional like what I owe and what I'm owed dimension of life. You know, I don't want to live in fight or flight. I have enough anxiety. I want to live in the aesthetic domain and so I always loved movies I wanted to live inside of movies like I wanted to like pierce the screen and be in the movie if I loved the plot I wanted that to be my reality and that led of course to a love of like my first video camera you know when I was like 11 years old and and I would at first I, I was too self-conscious to ever be in the front but I wanted to be the puppet master so I enjoyed nothing more than to direct my brother and my brother's friends and like the, the guy that used to work the garden in our house in Venezuela and put everybody in my movies, you know, and make them do crazy stuff and make these like stupid comedies, you know, like, I mean, just like Will Ferrell style. Like, <laughs> but it wasn't until uh, high school, probably when I was like 16, um, that I, uh, I tried cannabis for the first time. And I remember I was in my journalism class. I wrote an article for my high school newspaper on marijuana. And, and I finally, I read a book called Marijuana Myths, Marijuana Facts. And I found out that all of the reefer madness crap was crap. And that in fact, cannabis had been used by artists and musicians and creatives for centuries, right? Thousands of years. And I started to come across this literature. And then I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And th this is like, you know, all, all the kids in my high school were smoking pot years before, but I was like a kind of a weirdo goody two shoes until I was 16. And then I did this article and then I was like, okay, wow, I want to, I want to try this, you know, Ooh. I just needed to know that it was safe and that I wasn't going to die and like whatever. But, um, once I, again, the tick the boxes of feeling safe <laughs> and then I got high for the first time. And what was strange is that, you know, it, it didn't take much for me to see what it did to me you know it wasn't like oh i did it a few times and nothing's happening it was like it was like the first time took a couple puffs and i just like exploded and when i say exploded i'm saying that my 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 inner life i started to act out my inner life and and i think that the reason it was so explosive and so volcanic the, the ferocity the explosive ferocity of what came out i think is to some degree because it was so directly juxtaposed to how repressed or self-conscious I was. So when you're a really creative person, but you're also cripplingly shy mm -hmm. or cripplingly self-conscious, when you're so self-aware that you just imagine how you look in the eyes of others, that can be really stifling, you know? And, and, and people have insecurities. I had all the normal insecurities, but I think that they were just like more agitated because I was highly intelligent, you know? And so I was just like, I hated to take my shirt off in soccer class, you know? I was insecure, like pre-puberty that, it, you know, that I was like chubby, you know? And then after puberty, I had a good body, so I became more confident, but there was still 
you know, I, I didn't really feel comfortable with the cool kids and I was a cerebral guy and a heady guy and I didn't want to be the class clown. And I was just like, I was just like, I wound up nervous. I didn't seem that way, but I, but inside I was like, I was just nervous, awkward kid. And I, and I found loopholes and bridges to areas that I was more confident in, no doubt. But it really wasn't until I got high for the first time that I was like, oh my God, I, this is like, I want to like express myself almost like in an ecstatic dance where it was like, I no longer wanted to uh, in any way constrain myself or lower the volume to appease others. I was a very tall guy. I was very expressive, but I was also used to certain people saying, Jason, like lower the volume, you know? And it was just like, ah, it just, it just like, there was this, I was like owning the room, but I wasn't owning the room because I felt like I deserved to own it. But it was because the, 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 the things, my, my insides took possession, the insights, the ideas, the downloads took possession mm. of me. And when, well, when I was taken possession of, it was like, but, but it was, you needed to get rid of the inhibitions. You know, it was like being free of the inhibitions. It was like being in a nude beach and mm. not feeling uncomfortable. Well, you're owning yourself, being completely comfortable in your own body. But we carry all kinds of self-consciousness with us, you know, and I think, and I think for me, it was just like, it was like intellectually and, and, and expressively, like verbally, very similar to what people feel when they do ecstatic dance. And they say, like, move your body in the most ridiculous way ever. You know, I'm not much of a dancer. In fact, I never danced at parties. <laughs> like in high school, I went to a thousand parties. I'd meet, I hang out with my friends and we'd like drink and I never danced. But it just turns out that the way that I ended up finding my, my pathway to self-expression, you know, when I'm in it feels like a dance. It's just a bit more of a solo dance. You know, it's not being shared necessarily with a dance partner always. Well, maybe just not in the way that we're relating to it. I think that people do dance to what you say. Well, yeah, I like, I like how you say that. Well, thank you. So then what happened is, is uh, I became privy to how, how yummy it felt to be free of the brooding self-consciousness. Really, drugs are portals to states of consciousness in which, in which you get to see who you are when you're not there, right? The etymology of the word ecstasy means to be beside yourself. And people who are highly self-conscious, I think, have an over-identification with the self, like an overly rigid ego. And to be free from that is perceived as, as liber, liber, liberation. And then what happened yeah. is I knew that the effects would wear off, right? Like I knew the next morning I'd be back in my, back to myself. So that's where the idea of recording myself began. And this is when I was 16. Mm. This is like 1997, 98. So I would host these salons with my friends in my house. I handpicked the people I thought were the most interesting, thoughtful, intellectual. And we'd just get super high. And then we'd like interrogate each other and have these philosophical conversations when we were high. And then I started to film those conversations. And then I would watch them afterwards thinking, am I just going to look like some like stone guy making no sense? And it turned out, no, turned out, man, who the fuck is that guy? I'd watch the videos and I couldn't believe I was, that was me. Because to the self-conscious brooding Jason of the default consciousness, seeing Jason so loose, so free, so confident, so charismatic, so magnetic, like I didn't recognize that guy, but I wanted to be that guy. And that was, I think, mm -hmm. 
in a, in a sense, it became a, like it connected the dots in my brain. You know, normal Jason watching Jason in flow was revelatory. Yeah. Yeah. Showing you how to free yourself, yeah. who you could be. Yes. And I think it showed me that that I was that guy, that it wasn't the drugs. It wasn't that I smoked a joint and I became that guy. The joint was more like lubricant, like Astroglide. You know, I, the guy, I was that guy. I just, I just needed something to help break the shell. You know, the difference is toy or tool. And I think you use these drugs as a tool. Yes, correct. And I think the, the evidence is that I never have had a drug problem in my life. I didn't become a hard drug user, you know. I never went and did cocaine or did anything else. And I never abused cannabis. And I never, you know, I, I just, and I, I don't barely drink anymore. So it was like I learned something from it. And, I, and again, I, I don't drink. I'll use cannabis definitely intentionally um, as a kind of, uh, well, yeah, as a, as a tool, as a tool to, to help me uh, agitate that, that, that openness in me. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, kind of like using uh, instruments in the gym. You know, mm -hmm. you can exercise without those machines, but some of those machines are just, they're specialized in, in helping cultivate certain mind states. Yeah, yeah, you're training your conscious muscle. Correct. But I maintained the level of discipline and judiciousness that I, because I learned very early on, I'm like, this is a tool that if used correctly, could help me, well, it could change my life uh, if I use it correctly. Mm. And, and I stuck with that discipline. It's like Flaubert says, be disciplined and orderly in your life so that you can be violent and original in your work. Beautiful. And so, you know, when I say, maybe you don't like the word violence, but I think he means just violent in, in the uninhibited nature of your self-expression, yeah. like to shatter all your yeah. limitations. Shaking but things up. If you're disciplined and orderly in your life, then inside the magic circle of your creativity, you can be violent and original. And, and, I, mm. and I definitely, you know, that's like 1998. That's like, that's like 22 years ago. But from then, the vision was clear. And that vision was who I can be when I wasn't trapped by my own demons, so to speak. I love this conversation because Aww. I think that this is the, this is what is needed more than ever in the world is for people to unapologetically be that part of them that they that might be a whisper, but it can grow into a full flourished version of themselves. No doubt. Amen. Why did you see the importance of filming it? Why didn't you just keep it to yourself? Well, this is like, I, it wasn't like I was sharing it on the internet in 1998. So it, 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 it was for myself. No, I was uh, just recording it because First, I wanted, I liked the, the, the godlike thrill of capturing time. I'm not going to lie. There's something magical of like having an experience, recording it, and then like the next day, hey, guess what, guys? We can portal back there. You want to see what we filmed? You want to see what we created? It's like a distillation. Oh my God, it was it's a total, total creative yeah. power trip. I mean, the camera is a magical thing. And, um, and so watching it was a thrill and then adding music to it and then being like, holy fucking shit, look at, look at what happens when we add music to this conversation. <laughs> this is like a Hollywood movie. You know, I just, I, I just, I, I, it's pure creation is what it is. It was pure creation. And, and every time I would watch what I had done, it was reinforcing that muscle that I was like, wow, I am that person.
I can be that person. I have, I do have that capacity for creativity. Like, oh my goodness. Like it was a high, it was a high. And it was also a, a, a kind of embodiment because it was a way of like affirming myself, you know, like carving your name on a tree. Like Alan de Botton says, I was here, I felt something and it mattered. Like these videos were like, wow, like these passionate conversations, these marvelous insights that feel so important at the time are not just going to be surrendered into nothingness, you know? And so it was like very Dylan Thomas. I was like, every moment that I recorded was a moment in which I didn't go quietly into that good night. And instead I raged against the dying of the light. So it was like, it definitely was, um, was a way of, yeah, of like affirming myself. What does it mean to be an artist? <laughs> What does it mean to be an artist? Well, to find something that you have found some way of working through all those energies, you know, that, that, that you're take, taking in. Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death, says the neurotic and the artist both bite more than they can chew. So in, they're not so different. Neurotics and artists share an openness to experience, you know. They share a, a heightened sensibility and sensitivity um, that makes them almost, you know, unable in some ways to, to, to cope with the dreary and the everyday. But the difference between the neurotic and the artist is the neurotic chokes on his intro versions and the artist chews over them and reworks them into an active work project. So, so it's, it's a bit like you bite off more than you can chew, but then the neurotic is perpetually psychologically constipated. You know, he's full of blockages. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the effective artist, um, you know, just got, he's got a great way to metabolize what he's taking in. Mm, interesting. Because when you experience new experiences, there is like an energy that, that comes from that. And if a neurotic person is blocked, unlike an artist who metabolizes that, to use your word, expresses that, lets it flow through them and out, then there's not that pent up blockage, That's right. right? Is, That's is that right. what and you're saying is the difference? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I would even say that neurotics and artists, I think that, that temperamentally it's probably wired the same way, but mm. that you move along a spectrum because I think there are many aspects of me that are very neurotic. I just happen to have enough of an outlet in my life that I can thrive for the most part and be, and be functional. But I also recognize in myself a lot of neuroticism and proneness to negative emotion and catastrophizing thinking. But then is it about, I mean, now you've identified those areas and I think we all have like blind spots that we can't even see, but when you're aware of it, is it about transforming those neurotic patterns and transforming them into artistic behaviors. Yeah. I mean, I think the only way some of those imprints go back a long time, you know, some of those imprints are, 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 are somatic, you know, you're a highly sensitive kid and then you were subjected to certain experiences that traumatize you. So I would say my parents' divorce traumatized me and it acquainted me with a feeling of loss and a shattering of safety at a very young age that is still wired in my nervous system and can be easily triggered. I think growing up in Venezuela and being part of a wealthy family in Venezuela mm. and being always like 
worried about being targeted for kidnappings and home invasions and, you know, looking at your rearview mirror when you're 12, 13, 14 years old to make sure you're not being followed when you go home. Even though we lived in a really nice house, that fear was ever present. So my nervous system is, 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 in a, is wired for hypervigilance. You know, but then that translates into all these other things, right? Because it's like, oh, you have a headache. You're like, oh my God, let me go get a CAT scan just in case it's not that thing, you know? Like the creative person, if he's not busy doing his creativity, if left to his own devices, the negative emotion and the neuroticism can quickly take hold. Mm. And so it's like, well, as long as I have access to these handful of things, there's a lot of things I can live without. What are those handful of things? Well, I think my, my art, my creativity, my videos, you know, just, just, just an, an, a novel an engagement um, with the world that is largely aesthetic. So I, I like to marvel. So I, I think my, my favorite experiences are cognitive. I was once told I was a cognitive ecstasy addict. So as long as I can marvel, that's almost more exciting for me than the thrill of danger. I don't need to jump out of a plane. I would worry about the parachute not opening, even if it's 0.1% chance, too much to risk. Because if the parachute doesn't open and you die, that would really suck and I don't want to die. Because that would rob me of like a thousand more times of smoking a joint in Iceland while I explore some beautiful nature. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's a, for me, what I prioritize is access to experiences that I can marvel at. That's, that's priority number one. It feels like you've really learned to enjoy life yeah. and enjoy the experience of being alive. Well, I think it's just, you know, Michael Pollan, he wrote in The Botany of Desire, he was talking about states of consciousness in which you, have, uh, you achieve a virginal noticing of the sensate world. He calls it a sense of first sight unencumbered by knowingness. And I've probably said that quote a bajillion times in my videos because it always feels like the right time you know, <laughs> to say that. A sense of first sight unencumbered by knowing is, or, or, or the F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that I've said a thousand times. He talks about the Dutch sailors um, seeing uh, the, the new world for the first time when they arrived at the new world. And he says, for a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath compelled into an aesthetic contemplation, perhaps for the last time in history, face to face with something can measure it to his capacity for wonder. I live for soul stirring awe and everything I do is like, how do I move this around and move this around and DJ this and modify this and fix this so that I can go back to experience soul stirring awe? Because then it gives me enough nourishment to go back and do the tedious things with a smile and, and, and then, succeed by making creative things that I put out into the world. And then that affords me the possibility and freedom to go back and design the next yeah. soul stirring awe moment for myself. Mm. Jamie Wheel calls it feeding the holy. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're nourishing your holy. yourself so that you can get through the ordinary that, yeah. you know, is inevitable in yeah. life. Yeah, but I live for that. Because it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many times I feed the holy. It doesn't matter how many times experiences of radiance and ecstasy I have. When I, when I am back in the everyday, I'm still nervous about time passing. I'm still nervous about growing old. I'm still nervous about, you know, one day at 75 having to have an, uh, an illness because I want forever. 
You know, Miguel de Unamuno wrote in Tragic Sense of Life, eternity, eternity, that is the supreme desire. Nothing is real that is not eternal. So for me, um, the juxtaposition of soul-stirring awe against time passing and people dying is irreconcilable as far as I'm concerned. So that's the central tension that still lights a fire under my ass. It's like, well, then I have to just have more soul-stirring awe because if I don't have soul-stirring awe all the time, I would be driven mad simply by the the concept of mortality. The, The more present we can be in this moment now to realize that this moment is literally all that we have. Eternity. It is eternity. Now and eternity are like the same things because all we ever have is this. Yeah, but um, sustaining that level of presence, I don't think we're, we're not, we're not I, at least I'm not physically built for that. So eventually fatigue sets in, then hunger sets in, then the world of what I owe and what I'm owed sets in, then there might be boredom, right? And then hedonic adaptation. And then it's like, well, how do I get back to that sense of presence, you know, which is very taxing on your dopamine. I'm like, okay, get good sleep, feed yourself, do the emails you have to do, do the work you have to do, then go somewhere new in two days once your dopamine levels are back up and then expose yourself to something novel. And guess what? You'll be back in the presence, you know? You'll so be back are you at peace, peace with that with yourself? With knowing those cycles? That, yeah, because it is cyclical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, am I at peace with it? No, it's, it just feels like it's the best I've been able to figure out so far. <laughs> it's the best I've been able to figure out so far. So it's not that I'm resigned myself that it has to be that way. I, and I remain optimistic that there are shorthands and shortcuts and cheat codes that I've yet to figure out. But I've definitely, a, I have it at a place where it's like pretty, pretty great, but it could always be better. You know what I mean? I wasn't counting on a viral pandemic, you know, making it uh, dangerous to hug people. You know, I was always like, well, no matter where I go, there's people to hug. Well, guess what? Now you can't hug people. So those kinds of things affect me. The events happening in the world affect me. Looking at the news affects me. You know, that takes me out of presence, you know. Now, when I go sacred, I turn off my phone for hours, but eventually I have to turn it back on again. When I wake up in the morning, I have to check the news at least once a day to make sure an asteroid didn't hit the planet. You know what I mean? So... So you have to still negotiate against the trappings of the default world. And that, you know, is not, it's not poetry. What, what do you say to yourself or what is it that you are nourishing yourself with to help you be more yourself and be, be that expressive person that you know that you can be? What a part, what's that thought process like? Well, there, well, there, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's always a leap of faith that has to happen, right? There's always a leap of faith, a faith in tomorrow, you know, a faith that the sun will rise, a faith that when you go to sleep, you know, your, your, your body, your brain will flood, flood itself from toxins that build up during the day that you will be rebooted and reset. I mean, you know, have one night of insomnia, and that makes you question how quickly you can sustain your own sanity. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, there's, and I'm the kind of person that if I don't have insomnia all the time, but occasionally if I can't sleep, I go straight to the catastrophic thoughts. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to sleep for days. I'm going to have to be hospitalized. How do I get, how do I knock, you know, like there's a, you know, there's a, you have to get back to at least some kind of 
faith, unfortunately, and trust. And, you know, trust is great, but it's still trust. You know, I still prefer certainty to trust, to faith, you know. Faith is beautiful, but I still prefer certainty. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if, like, you know, the, the curtain parts and the, the seas parts and you actually, like, spoke to the benevolent aliens and the other dimensions and, like, they actually, like, assured you, like, 100% that they got you. You're good. You're safe forever. You'll live a thousand years of perfect health and perfect youth. We got this. Oh, my God. Man, I'd relax. That'd be awesome. Sometimes you, you just have to make friends with your mind. And you have to trust physical processes, you know. And, you know, like, in a way, uh, that's intolerable. In a way. You know, Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death, said that seen without our psychological defense mechanisms, the human condition seen nakedly would, the only response is full and open psychosis. That is the only response to the nakedness of our situation without reassuring psychological defense mechanisms or vital lies, as he calls them, um, or necessary illusions. In the sense that, like, to really dwell on the whole thing, you know? Um, And, you know, like, marveling at the cosmos and the infinity is all amazing if you've had a good night of sleep. That's a great point. (laughs) Try marveling at all of that on, like, two nights of no sleep. See how quickly the whole thing, you know, swallows you whole, Mm. you know. So then Ernest Becker all of a sudden doesn't sound so cynical. Sounds pretty astute. But, um, Mm. you know, sorry, I'm agitating you. (laughs) No, you know, I'm just, I'm feeling that there's almost like. It's okay. um, We can always, you can always go back to the body. That's what sex is for. That's what like a hot bath is for, a shower. You know, like, look, listen to a beautiful song, kiss somebody, smell them, you know, like there's, 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 there are ways of like dropping back into the womb. Don't you think that that is tied in with the purpose of art? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I, yes, I mean, again, there still has to be the faith that I can, that you'll go to sleep and you'll recover and you'll recuperate and you get another chance the next day to like feel clean and energized and ready to marvel at what you've done and what you and plan what you're going to do next. But that presupposition taken care of, uh, the sun will rise and you'll have another day. Then, then yeah, the wonderful thing about art is that, again, it affirms you. It affirms your power. It affirms, perhaps you might say, your divinity. Right? When I, when I watch one of my really good videos, something that I really love, where I'm just like, man, that was Oh, I was channeling. I was on fire. Oh my God, that music works so well with it. The edit is so good. I I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. I can't. I can't believe I did that. And in that moment, I feel reassured. Because if I can't believe I did it, but I did it, well then, anything's possible. (laughs) What is the proudest moment that you've had as an artist? The thing about... Pride is that it's so short lasting. <laughs> the high of it, you know, is so fleeting. But um, I, you know, I feel great every time that I that my impact is reflected back to me. 
So every time I meet a smile from someone that's like, wow, your work has touched me, that gets me out of my limiting beliefs immediately and makes me feel like I'm not bound by gravity or space or time or anything. You know, every time I get invited on a stage, every time I get paid to like just talk without a script, Every time somebody pays to put me on a plane to fly me across the world to speak to their company or their government, you know, these are companies and governments that do things <laughs> that I could never do. And somehow they want to sit and listen to me talk and then tell me, thank you. You've really helped us. I feel um, moved and probably what I feel is uh, held by miraculousness, by held by something you know, that I don't fully comprehend in those moments. The problem is you forget quick. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many amazing things that Joseph Campbell says is describing the hero's journey to have the three elements of departure, fulfillment, mm. and return. And when I speak with you, I feel that you, that your vice of, um, of transcending however it is that you choose to do, that is your departure. The consciousness that you are gaining in that, those moments, that is your fulfillment. And the videos that you then share with us and share with your audiences, that is your Brilliant. return. So if there is any doubt in your mind that you are not, you know, that you are not radiating this world with the work that you are doing, then I hope that this can help to give you that extra confidence because I think that you are a prime example of someone who is on the hero's journey. Mm. And it's because you are returning mm -hmm. your, mm. Um, your wisdom and sharing your wisdom back with your audiences. You know, you are doing a fantastic job. Yeah, and it feels so beautiful. Thank you for saying that. That's so kind. And, and, and I want to hold on to that. And I am reassured by that. But then I have these competing reflections that say, yeah, well, you're also 10 years older than you were 10 years ago. And 10 years from now, you'll be 10 years older than you are now. And then you'll be approaching 50 and then your life will be like... But there's you know, a there's gift in this moment that you're in. You're only here at this moment, at this age, in this like literal moment, you're only here, you know, the moment's already gone. We've already passed that moment. So there's something that you can, I believe, have at every stage in your journey that is going to enhance what you, who you are and the art that you're sharing. I believe in intuition. That's something that, uh, that I feel very strongly. Um, you know, even accepting this podcast interview was intuitive, right? There was nothing rational around, about it. I receive a lot of, <laughs> no, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm saying that I receive numerous requests for podcasts and as much as I love this, uh, I'll be tired after this and it'll probably take me like an hour and a half to unwind. That's just how I am. Um, but intuition is, you know, I'm just like, I don't know. Something about the note you said, something about your Instagram profile. I was like, I don't know. Interesting. An actress, interesting. Like intuition. So who knows? Who knows the things that have come up in this conversation how they'll play out in the rest of my day, month, week, or year. But like, I am a believer in, in intuition. So it's like, it's like I ping pong between living in faith and living in surrender and then getting in my way and the brooding self-consciousness and neuroticism, you know, like, 
like comes back into the ring. I, I get a lot of pleasure from listening to Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote Eat, Eat Pray, oh, Love. Yeah. Shout out fantastic. to Elizabeth Gilbert. I, I really wish, I really wish I was her friend. She, okay, so she, you know how many messages I've sent her on Instagram saying, you're brilliant. Can we be friends? And she has not replied because she has boundaries that I'm not so good at. Imagine. Oh. No, no, but what I mean by that, I've reached out to so many people that, and then you hear them saying the power of a positive no, the thing about boundaries. This is something that, and as an artist, you like, at first, you want to you put your art into the world in the hopes that it's going to bring you amazing, interesting connections, opportunities, and, and, and a chance to meet amazing people, you know, the urge to connect. But then be careful what you wish for, because then you're on the receiving end of all these requests, and the brain, our brain doesn't know what to do when a hundred messages are saying, we'd love to talk to you. Mm. You don't have the bandwidth for more yeah. than one a day, really, you know, and you also want your free yeah. time. So how do you, how you so, so it actually it causes almost like a, like a hard drive, like failure, you know? But in any case, I, I bring her up because listening to her read an audible of Eat, Pray, Love got me through a period in like 2015 where I was, I, I went through several months where I had a, acute, acute levels of anxiety. I was having like micro panic attacks. And it was from, uh, it was related to basically a manufactured health scare. So talk about a neurotic. It ended up being fine and I'm perfectly healthy. It was mostly in my head. Um, but it left, I was traumatized from, from the experience, from the, from the panic attack I had and spent months having micro anxiety attacks and listening to her read, eat, pray, love was so soothing and so magnificent. But, you know, she talks about how managing her mental health is her full-time job. So I would say it's the mm -hmm. same thing for me. Like the expansion of my consciousness and managing my mental health is my job. The videos are what I leave in my wake. <laughs> but um, anyway. No, I'm Elizabeth Gilbert, shout out. Because, and right. also um, Julia Cameron. Don't know. Um, I am. It is my privilege <laughs> to tell you about Julia Cameron. She wrote a book called "The Artist's Way." I heard of the and book, and it's phenomenal. She talks about how to essentially. Actually, Elizabeth Gilbert is one of her recommend. It's on her page. Fascinating. Wow. I really love this. Is what she says. Wow. It's a course in discovering and recovering your creative self, and it's it's. It's this will be my yeah, gift yeah. and my thank you gift for You're speaking. So I will thank this you. will this will be my thank you gift. I will send it. And well, we got to get you maybe when I come back because uh, I have to go to the U.S. and then I'm going to be in the in that side of the world for a bit. But when I come back in February, you should come join me and my friend for one of our magical bike rides in the Netherlands. I would be down for that. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. I think and, you'd uh, really you'd really enjoy our shenanigans. <laughs> That's how I'm. I'm down for an adventure. I wrote this year. A uh, recently, one of my personal things that I was working on was my confidence. I realized that that was the the stage. Like that's my next level is fully embracing myself and fully if just being happy with who I am. And it's the artist journey that I believe is helping me to be that. So that's, you know, why I'm loving these conversations and, um, thank oh, I think you. you're doing and great. this is what I'm working on. Yeah. I dig <laughs> your kind. vibe. And I wrote a self manifesto 
And I wrote this to myself as a sort of DNA of who am I in the state where of who I want to be? What is who is that person, and what 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 are the, what's the makings of that person? And number one is I say yes to adventures. So I will be there. I will be in Amsterdam on your bike rides great, because great. that's that's number one of my self manifesto. Beautiful. I love it. I'm going to ask it. you my final question, okay. which is if you could live inside the mind of another artist for a day, who would it be and what would you specifically like to explore whilst you were there? Cameron Crowe. <laughs> he directed Almost Famous and Vanilla Sky and many more films, but those two are my favorites. I want to ask him, oh, I probably already know the answer, but I just, I want it to be reconfirmed. <laughs> I, I want to I talk to him about when he crafts these, these characters, whether it's, whether it's uh, um, Penelope Cruz in Vanilla Sky, the Sophia archetype, or Penny Lane in Almost Famous. And when he sets their faces uh, against the music that he chooses, the, the stunningly, achingly beautiful melodies that he plays against, against them on screen, uh, uh, I just I want to know how it is that he knows me so well. <laughs> how does he know? How does he feel the way I feel? I feel there's like, um, you know, I know that all of us are unique in our DNA code. Every individual is fully unique, but I, I do believe there's some patterns and there's some archetypal patterns that just seem to be like, there's an affinity and a, and a common thread here. And when I see an artist that clearly has created a, a portrayal of, of love or wonder or awe that is highly personal because it was conceived by them, but then seems to resonate with the deepest parts of me, I'm like, how do you know me so well? And, and to be, and to feel so seen through his gaze, right? Because what he chooses to put on screen is his gaze, right? It's what he sees and what he feels. And to see that resonate so much with my interior life makes me almost wanna, makes me love them for being. I want, I want nothing from them. I just love them. It fills me with gratitude for their existence. And it would give me great pleasure to tell them how grateful I am that they exist. So excellence and genius awakens that in me. For me, like, it's almost like immortality. Like when I am reminded of genius and excellence, when I behold excellence and genius, that's the most existentially reassuring thing in the world. It makes me drunk with gratitude. It makes me want to say, I'm so happy that you exist. Your existence revindicates my faith in the sublime. And that's how I feel about many, many artists, but definitely Cameron Crowe and his, his take on love in those films does that to me. Here is to being drunk with gratitude. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Jason Silver, thank you so much for following this intuition and saying yes to this, because I'm, I'm so grateful because I, I really appreciate what you say and what you stand for. And may you continue this wonderful, awesome journey that you're on. And I'm glad to be, you know, thank you on the receiving Louise. end of your work. Thank you. You're so kind. I appreciate you. Thank you.
if you've enjoyed this episode or if you have something to share with us, get in touch at slowcooked underscore on Instagram or Twitter and share with us what's inspiring you. This podcast is brought to you by Slow Cooked Productions. The poster artwork is by Kleber Almeida and the soundtrack was created by Wildcamp. Wishing you a week of creative fulfillment and artistic revelations. <laughs>